Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Payson. I've been doing this podcast since September of 2012, and boy, are my lips tired. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. Especially since we have a very special guest joining us today. This guy, he's a world traveler. I mean, it, it, people talk about how they have bucket lists, right? Things that they want to do before they die. This guy lives his bucket list. I mean, his entire life is a bucket list. It's one thing after another. He he was a, a semi-finalist on America's Got Talent. He has been in, what, 86 countries? How many countries have you been in, Lex? Uh, 83. 83 countries? When I get married again here in October, or married. Oh, my uh, goodness. I'm going mean, to more, so. He, he's been a Zen monk. He, he's done all these really cool things. And, and, and not only that, he's an author. So he's like, you know, a traveler and he's writing about it at the same time. So yeah, Lex Latkowski, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you better and finding out what, what you're all about, man. Well, thank you all. I appreciate you having me on your, your show today and I'm looking forward to it. So thank you very much. So, all right, let's, let's go back to America's Got Talent. Cause that's, I think the first thing that always jumps out at somebody, right? Okay, you were what were you a singer, a dancer? What'd you do? Um, there was a dance routine. Uh, my brothers, my two younger brothers, are really talented. They've got the number one entertainment show in sports, and uh, they've had it for many years. Uh, you've probably never heard of them, but they um, they go around minor league and major league and NBA and basketball and NCAA and perform between uh, on the on the court or on the field between innings or between timeouts. And oh wow. They, uh, they got lucky enough to get on uh, America's Got Talent back in 2000. I don't remember the date, 2006, 2008, uh, 2010. And it was when David Hasselhoff was one of the judges. And uh, All right. What's his name? Um, Jerry Springer was the host. Oh, and, no kidding. <laughs> wow. So we made it to the top 20. And I was out in Hollywood for, you know, a while with my brothers performing. And it was a lot of fun. It's funny because I... All these great things that I've done in my life, that's the first thing that people want to know about is America's Got Talent. It's funny. Yeah. It, it, it never fails. Well, I mean, it has the name recognition, I think, more than anything else. Everybody, at least, even if they don't watch the program, they're all aware of it. So, of course, that's the first thing they want to find out about, right? Yeah, that makes sense. But you're right. I mean, your resume reads like, you know, one adventure after another. And, in fact, you even made a comment on we, – we met through one of the um, – I think it was Podmatch. We went through one of the uh, host guest meeting services. And uh, one particular quote that you put on there really kind of stood out. It said, where was it? Of course, no, now I can't find the quote, right? As soon as I'm saying this, I can't find the quote. Where is it? It was a cool one. Oh, yes. I believe life should be an amazing adventure. And I can't tell you how much that resonates, not just with me, but with listeners, because we talk about life being abundant. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the abundance of life. Where did that come from for you? I mean, how did that whole philosophy get started for you? Uh, well, I fortunately I had some fairly adventurous parents, and um, they were not 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 to the level that I am, but um, they always told me, you know, that they, I mean, like good parents do. They say you can do whatever you want, be 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 whoever you want to be, et cetera. But you know, we did, we did a family trip out to. California from where I was living. We lived in Kentucky and uh, loaded up the, the, the red uh, Volkswagen bus and drove for a month from Louisville, Kentucky to, you know, all the way up through the north and then back down through Mexico and had a blast of an adventure. And so I've always had an adventurous spirit. My brothers have the same thing. And the, the part about the adventure is even if you don't, even if you don't leave your house, there's, even if you don't leave your neighborhood, there's things there's so much, if you pay attention, there's so much that you could be doing, that you could be exploring, that you could be enjoying. And, you know, I, I, I never get bored. I'm not trying to brag, but, you know, I know people that get bored. And I'm like, how can you be bored? You know, it's, you're not paying attention. So, um, and, and then there was a guy, I can't remember his name, Night, Nightingale or something. Uh, Nightingale. That was him. And yeah. I used to listen, this guy's been gone forever, but he was one of the first motivational speakers. And if you, if you YouTube him, uh, he's got these great speeches about, you know, basically manifesting your, your reality. Oh yeah. And yeah, he uh, was actually uh, the mentor to Bob Proctor, who was being in law of attraction circles for many, many okay. years. So yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's like, I think I was listening to one of his podcasts, not podcasts or YouTube videos once. And he talked about, you know, making life an adventure. And I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. So I, 
you know, it's in my book, you know, as far as life should be an amazing adventure. And it's like, even if you don't leave your town, you know, there's, there's plenty to do if you're paying attention. So well, that's a great point because what you're really saying is that the adventure happens between the years. It right. starts with what you are focusing on, what you're thinking about, what you're believing in, what your, what your orientation is. Cause right. without that, I mean, you wouldn't have done half the things that you've done and that you're going to be doing if it wasn't for that, right? Well, right. I mean, like, why would I, why would I go to Mongolia for a month if I thought it wasn't going to be, if it was going to end up bad? You know, that's what most, yeah. <laughs> most world travelers are generally optimistic people. Cause why would you ever spend the money and time and take the risk if you mm. thought it was going to turn out poorly? So, you know, I'm an, I'm an optimist. I'm also, you know, I've also got a lot of sarcasm and cynicism, but it's usually just a defense <laughs> mechanism. But why would you ever do something if you thought it was going to turn out bad uh, or poorly? So, um, you know, I, it's I a great philosophy. Things. So I tackle things that people don't want to tackle. And it's like, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to learn something or get something done. So <laughs> there you go. That's good. So let's talk about uh, your 16 months as a monk. I mean, that, that's an interesting choice all by itself. And we were kind of chatting a little bit about that before we started the show, how um, you weren't doing it for religious reasons. But what reasons were you doing it for? What, what made you decide you really wanted to do that? Uh, that's a good question. So I, when I was living in Phoenix, Arizona, for 12 years, I had a really good buddy who went and did a seven-day silent retreat at a Zen monastery, very good friend of mine. And he came back, and he was just on fire. And he said, Lex, I found – I think I found what you're looking for. And I said, I'm not looking Ooh. for anything. <laughs> And, you know, and I'm like, and he's like, dude, this is, this is right up your alley. He started telling me about it. So a couple months later, he and I drove back to the same Zen monastery in the mountains above Palm Springs in Southern California and did a seven day silent retreat. And I was hooked. And I just started doing these seven day silent meditative retreats like once a year. Uh, and I did it for a, a number of years. And I just thought rather than dipping my toe in the water for uh, a week here or there, I'm, I called up the Zen master and I said, I'd, I want more of this. And he's like, okay, come here. So I, I packed up everything, sold a bunch of stuff. And, uh, you know, I had, at that time, I had four uh, real estate properties that I was managing with 10 tenants and I had a, <laughs> a forerunner and I had a, two dogs and I had a really nice girlfriend. And I said, if I don't go, if I don't go do this now, I'm never going to do it because I had, everything was lined up. So I did it. And uh, so it was just 16 months of bliss. You know, it was, um, you know, just anywhere between three and six hours of silent meditation a day in a very small community up in the mountains and eating, eating extremely healthy, healthy food and going to bed early and getting up early and just finding out what, you know, what might, what made me tick. And more importantly, finding out by, by finding out what didn't work, I was left with what did work and, you know, trying to, trying to clean up some of the wreckage of my past and, um, you know, the programming and the societal influences that I had. So it was, it was a really good time. I, I highly recommend it to anybody. You know, it's, I, I know most people can't take off for a year or 16 months and go do that, but you know, give it a shot if you can do it for a week. Yeah, I can see that. Talk, talk a little bit though about you, you kind of hinted at there was some, some cool stuff that you got out of it, but give us like a, a flavor of it. Like name one thing that was like one of the best things that you got out of it. Uh, well, one, okay, so the, the, probably the two most important things was uh, were that I was able to to focus and pay attention to things like I've never been able to before. So yeah. uh, instead of multitasking and thinking I can do all the things, I realized that I'm really good when I pay attention to something, whether it's, you know, paying attention to someone's conversation or chopping vegetables or whatever. It's like if I'm trying to do too many things, they suffer. And so... I learned how to focus and pay real close attention to what's what's going on because there's plenty going on in the present moment, and uh, so that was that was amazing. My ability to focus and pay attention and 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 get stuff done, and then behind the scenes, by sitting uh, in a, on a cushion for three to six hours a day, every day, five seven days a week, I was able to bring my my body to stillness and bring my mind to stillness. And when that lines up, there's just all this opening that that happens that allows, you know, the universe to shine through. And so what I was able to do was just to just sitting there without moving, without itching, without looking around. I, I would have a, my emotions would still pop up. My urges would pop up. My my fears would pop up. My 
um, addictions would pop up and there was no, there was nowhere to run to or to go do anything with them. So I would just try to find the source, the, the, the beginning of those thoughts and impulses. And by going backwards, I was able to short circuit some of the programming. So for example, this was the analogy I came up with. It's like if, if, if I have a really bad habit and I want to stop it, um, it's, 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 you know, it's easy to say that, but it's kind of hard to do that. But once, once you're able to kind of see the programming for one habit or one emotion or something, the other ones start to stink the same way or just to, to, to identify the same way. So instead of turning off one light switch at a time, you're like, heck, I could just go into the garage and turn, you know, hit the circuit breaker and turn off, you know, a bunch of these at the same time. So by working on one or two, there was a pattern. And then all of a sudden, a lot of the other stuff just fell away because it was in the same realm. And so then at some point it was like, well, heck, I don't even need to turn off the, the breaker. I can turn off the whole service panel. And um, so it was like it was like a snowballing effect. So as I started to, to clean up some of the things, the other ones started to fall away, too. And the, so that was the that was the, the best part. You know, I did a whole lot of uh, emotional work before because I was I just gotten divorced after seven years. And uh, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up at the age of 30 or th- 35 or however old I was. So it was the, the benefit was by sitting there quietly and having nothing else to do. I was able to take care of a lot of housekeeping, uh, emotional and societal kind of conditionings that I'd had. And, um, you know, I, I didn't have a bad childhood. I had a very loving, se- secure family. They were, my dad was controlling and demanding. My mom was shameful, uh, you know, but not to a, not any more than most people's families were. You know, I wasn't abused in any way, but, you know, uh, there were still things that I had to clean up later, you know. I, sure. was never, I was never hurt, hurt, and everything's relative, but those hurts for me were the big ones. Um, you know, some other people might say, oh, you, you know, you had a, you had an easy childhood, but it's like everything's relative, so. It uh, is. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and I, I'm really interested in, and, Quite fascinated by the fact that you describe. I mean, let, let me take a step back. Um, when I ever think about changing a habit or getting rid of a habit, especially if I'm talking to somebody else and they're having trouble with it, one of the first things I suggest is, well, replace it with a different habit, one that you like, because it's so much easier to replace a habit with a habit. But you did right. something that's much more advanced than that, and, and obviously that's what uh, you know, the monks were doing and so forth. They, you, you all were approaching it with, let's just remove the habit and replace it with the discipline of focus. Right. And that is a, that's a, an accomplishment. That's a major accomplishment. That, that's so much stronger than just replacing a habit with another habit. That's taking control of your life. Yeah. And, and fortunately, the, the Zen master, he was an extremely gifted, um, coach. And so we, we would have sessions, individual sessions, and he would help you work on reprogramming the bad habits. So, you know, like if, if, if I, if something doesn't go right, I can reach over to my traditional uh, toolkit and pick up the hammer and start, you know, hitting things and getting mad and, and cussing. Or <laughs> I could pull my head out of my butt and reach over here and get a better tool out of this new uh, toolkit and use laughter or <clears throat> inquiry and say, oh, isn't this interesting? I used to get mad when I dropped the coffee beans on the, the floor, but now it's right, like, right. all right, so I dropped the coffee beans. You know what that means? I, I dropped the coffee beans. It's like, that's it. Be, yeah. Used to be f bombs and punching the cabinet, and it was like I called him up and I said, "Hey, you're not you're not going to believe this, but I just, uh, you know, I just had a really bad uh, situation that used to put me over the edge, and I just sat there and laughed at it." And he's like, "All right, that's good news." So it is. That's great news. That, that because that's mastery right there. That's yeah. mastering your own ability to focus. That's fabulous. That's so, really like you said, if you got a habit, you know, I've, I've got my habits that are. You know, not always positive, but, you know, it's like, okay, so you replace it with something that is positive. And, uh, you know, the, the ones that were bothering me were when other people were hurt. It's like if I have a bad habit, like if I drink a beer, that hurts me, you know, or someone else maybe if, if they're in the room with me and they're getting bored because I'm drinking a beer. But if, if, if I get angry, that hurts me, it hurts them, it hurts everybody else in the room. And so that's the kind of stuff that I wanted to do was to stop anybody else's suffering. And stop subjecting people to my 
you know, my anger or my insecurities or my, you know, procrastination or something like that. It's interesting that you mentioned the word suffering. It's actually been a word that has come up in conversation here on the show a um, few times the last few days. And in this context, we're, we're addressing it a little bit differently. But uh, I, I just want to bring up the idea that I brought up previously, which is that suffering is a choice. We do, you often don't think about it that way. We don't think about, oh, well, I'm going to choose to suffer today. <laughs> it's not the way we think about it. But nevertheless, from instant to instant, moment to moment, any time that an opportunity comes along, it's up to us whether we're going to suffer. Yeah. We get to choose. We can we can be suffering. We can laugh at it. We can do whatever we want with it. It's a, it's completely up to us. Yeah. And once we recognize that that fact, well, it doesn't necessarily make it easy to stop suffering, but it makes it possible. And once it's possible, then you can accomplish almost anything, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's. I love it. I um, you know, the, the, I'm not it, I'm not really religious, but if I was, I would probably be closest to the Buddhism and, and Buddha. But basically, he said that life is suffering, but that doesn't mean that life is a a poop sandwich 24 7 365 and you can't get out of that what it means is that they're suffering um so what are you going to do with it and it's like that so the everyone at the zen center when i was there we, if you would have asked us what are you working on the bulk of the people would have said i'm trying to become a better person and i'm trying to reduce my suffering and reduce the suffering around people other people and so suffering is just an attachment um, and, and, it, uh, suffering is, in my opinion, suffering is an attachment to something. And the longer you're attached to it, it's like a multiplier factor. So if you're angry and you stay angry, the suffering is huge. It's, um, you know, I still get angry, but I don't stay angry. I get, I get angry and I'm, and, and I figure out what's wrong and I deal with it. Uh, suffering is, it's like the, the I was a math major, but it's like, you know, you get the, it's a multiplication table. It's, it's, Yes. <laughs> it's an attachment times uh, multiplied by time. And it's like the longer you attach to it, the more suffering. And so. Um, it has a limit of infinity, which makes it even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that. That's my math, my math plan. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the whole thing about uh, uh, suffering. And by the way, I, I love the quote to the, the, the quote from the Buddha about life is suffering, because I think one of the most ironic things about that quote is that the Buddha never suffered. Yeah. I mean, he was using it as a teaching point, but he never suffered. That was just never part of his existence here on earth. It just wasn't even a consideration, right. but he was using the, the concept as a way to teach others, which well, is really the, fascinating. The, the interesting thing, well, is in my book, the, the first chapter, I think, or the second chapter talks about a, um, it's a parable. You've probably heard it, but there's a traveler that's going through, um, I think it's in China, but they go, he's going through this village and he says, Hey, I'm trying to get up to the mountains, up to the, the, the village on the mountain. Uh, can you tell me about it? And the, uh, the farmer says, well, what was your experience in the previous village? And the first person that came through says, Oh, it sucked. You know, the food was terrible. It was cold. I had to eat um, a, a stew with things that I'd never eaten before. The people were <laughs> whatever and, you know, et cetera. Basically just, you know, a, a complainer. And then the farmer said, well, you're probably going to find the village up there to be similar to that. And a mm. few minutes later, the, the second uh, adventurer or tourist came through and said, hey, I'm going to the village up in the mountains. Can you tell me about it? And he's like, well, how did you find the previous village? And they said, oh, it was great. It was I ate this stew that I'd never had before, which was interesting. <laughs> these people spoke a, a funny language and I had to adapt and, and this, and, you know, and then also, you know, it was cold, but it made me realize, you know, how much I like being warm when I'm around warm things. And the farmer simply said the same thing. Well, you're probably going to find the village up there to be similar. And so it's like, you know, your interpretation of suffering or your interpretation of a bad day um, might be what I enjoy. You, you think it, Someone else might think it stinks, and I'm like, this is great, you know? So. <laughs> it's true. Different perspectives produce different results, and not just uh, imaginatively, in reality. I mean, that one leads to the other. Exactly. In fact, that's one of the, one of the more interesting um, advanced techniques we like to talk about here on the show, the, the, the technique of appreciating stuff we don't like. Because that's really what we're talking about here, right? We're talking right. about how, how do you deal with, first of all, and then how do you find a way to appreciate you know, that stew that tastes horrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
and in the process of learning how to appreciate that stew that tastes horrible, it actually tasted pretty good, (laughs) which is the really interesting part because once we change the way we think about it, we also change the way we experience it. Right. And so it's like, you know, everybody has their, everything's relative. There's, there's, there are no absolutes. And so the, uh, everyone, everything's relative and people's ideas about things are relative and those things can be, those things are, uh, you know, malleable. They're, they're, you can work on those. Um, you know, that it's not a hard and fast, um, black and white. So. Now you also, like you mentioned before, you, you've been in 83 countries. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. I think I've been in two, maybe three, uh, uh-huh. but, <laughs> but <laughs> you've been in 83 countries. Now that alone, that experience alone, plus all 50 states, I've only done 43. I feel like I'm behind the curve here, but, uh, that alone gives you so much perspective because you, you now can see yourself. You can see America. You can see all kinds of stuff from 83 plus 50 perspectives. <laughs> and, and, and just from 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 the land masses, not even looking at the individuals within those land masses, that's right. got to be helpful to you. That's the way I look at that. It's got to be helpful. Well, it's 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 going. You know, I, I know I'm dating this 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 um, this interview, but you know, right now with what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine, you know, the mm-hmm. or Ukraine, you know, my father was born in Latvia, which is one of the three Baltic republics. You know, Baltic right. states: Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. My father fled the Russians. His, his father and it took the four children at the time fled to Germany uh, for safe harbor before they came to America mm. and we ended up in having, you know, there were nine children overall, but four were born in Latvia, including my father. And so I've been to all three of those Baltic states. I've been to Ukraine. I've been to Poland. I absolutely love Poland. I love Ukraine. I spent uh, two weeks in Ukraine. I didn't make it to Russia. Um, but I have, I have an appreciation for these people and, and, uh, I've been to, I stood in that square. If you're looking at the news, they call it Independent Square. It's actually called Maidan, M-A-I-D-A-N in Kiev. And I went to Lviv and I went, I was going to go to Chernobyl, but the winds were blowing the wrong way and they didn't let me go in that day. So they gave me mm-hmm. a refund, et cetera. But I was there with these people and they're, you know, unfortunately there's some very bad things happening, but I've also learned that again, nothing's relative and there's a lot of, there's always two sides to every story. There's, um, you know, I, of course, I don't want anybody to suffer, but the, um, you know, I, the, you know, having been to Ukraine, it gives me a different perspective that no one, 98% of the people watching on TV here in America or, or wherever haven't been there yet. They don't, they don't have an appreciation for it. So it breaks my heart to see what they're doing and what's happening there. So the, uh, what, what does that perspective give you though about, um, understanding what is happening from the point of view of the Ukrainians you met? Um, well, when I, when I watch the news and I'm seeing this whole Ukraine thing go down, half these people, you know, I've got that goofy uh, Latvian body and Latvian face or whatever. And a lot of these people look <laughs> like my first cousins or something. And, <laughs> and the, 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 the Ukrainians are much more attractive than I am, but they're, they are, um, I feel like they're me and I hear them talking and they talk that thick accent like my grandparents do and my father had. And I, and it makes me um, realize how close we are, we are all together. You know, we're all tied mm. in together and I'm watching what's happening to these people. And they're, they're very strong and they're standing up against the Russians, et cetera. Um, but they, they, every single person that I met when I was traveling around the world and, you know, I've spent, I don't know, four years outside of America and all my adventures. And I've only had a handful of people that were mean to me or jerks or tried to do something stupid to me. 99 point whatever percent of the people I met, whether they're, you know, white, black, yellow, orange, whatever color, they all they care about generally is being nice to their family, having a, a decent place to call home and something to eat and to be able to go out with friends or, or whatever. So doesn't matter what, what language they speak or where they are. And the, the Ukrainians were the same. They were just going about their day shopping. And so it's like they're all doing the same thing in a different way than we are. But they're, um, you know, it's like so they were they were very good people, very, very hospitable, very helpful. People were helping me at the train station to get buy tickets because, you know, I don't speak Russian or read Russian. So sure, you know, it was it was a good experience. And. But I've, again, I've had 83 countries and 
I've had almost no bad experiences except in Mongolia and uh, Egypt. So, <laughs> and undoubtedly, the, the fact that your your good experience track record is so high it had to be because of your mindset. It had to be because of what you ex- expected going in and how you decide to experience and interpret your experience while you were there. Yes, and the the, the law of attraction. You know, I generally uh, sought out nice people and. Uh, I, I had pretty good intuition if I was in a bad situation or a bad, you know, where there was someone that, that might be dangerous or someone that I wouldn't mm-hmm. uh, mesh with. But the, there's a chapter in my book that I talk about, about, you know, avoiding problems and, and difficult people. And so while I was traveling, I met plenty of other guy, other travelers, including mostly men who were looking for either drugs or sex. And the moment they did that, they went into a completely different um, section of town with a completely mm. different section of people and they were asking right. for trouble. It's the wrong side of the tracks. I didn't do that. And so by not doing that, you know, the, you know, again, um, by not manifesting what I was looking for and with the wrong people, I stayed out of trouble. So, you know, with the exception of a few times in Mongolia where I thought I might not wake up cause I was going to get killed. Um, you know, there was, and that was beyond my control. I was in the middle of nowhere on the on the Mongolian steppe, and the horse, my horse, uh, my horse guide was basically threatening myself and my Israeli travel buddy, and threatening to kill us. And uh, you know, we were days away from the closest village if we walked. So, but anyway, yeah, that's, that, that's a frightening that's a frightening situation, no doubt about that. Yeah, and, and it illustrates another interesting point too, uh, a very a very important point, I think. Uh, because I think a lot of people kind of get the wrong idea about how the law of attraction works. They figure, well, if you always maintain a positive mindset, you always have good things happen. But they forget a key element, and that is we chose to come to this life. And in this life, we often call it a, a, a world of polarity or a world of contrast, meaning that there are good things have, or let's label it this way. There are things going on that we like that we label as good, and there are things we uh, that are going on that we don't like that we label as bad. And mm-hmm. Whatever those labels are is whatever they are. We all get to decide what it is that is good and what it is that is bad for us. But the bottom line is that experience means we're going to encounter stuff because we chose to come to a world that's like that. We're going to encounter stuff at times that we don't like. The question isn't whether or not we're going to encounter it. The question is how are we going to handle it? Exactly. And if you don't have that figured out, well, you're going to find out, right? Because that's what you would do. Right. Oh, you're, you're in the middle of you're in the middle of Mongolia. You're basically being faced by somebody who's threatening to kill you. I'm sure you had to. It, it was well. First of all, it was probably frightening. But by the same token, you had to decide how you're going to handle that. How you're going to respond. Right. And there was there's no there was nothing I could do. You know, there was no website I could go to that says you know you're getting ready to get killed in Mongolia. Here's here's a five day. <laughs> I was on my own. Things to do. <laughs> yeah, here's here's your top five things to do, and when you're getting killed in Mongolia, and right? So, um, but the, you know the the you know the the thing I was talking about with like relative and absolute, they're two sides to the same coin. So on if you have, if I have a coin and one side is happiness, if you flip it over, what's on the other side of the coin? And if so, if you if you've ever, in my opinion, if you've ever uh, cried so hard you started laughing or laughing so hard you started crying <laughs> that's there's a reason for that there's the, mm. the, and so anger and fear and all these other um the, you know the opposite of anger is love but you know um it's like they, they're all they're they're on the same coin it's just the flip side so they're they're you can go through them you know you can go through that coin and get into the other feeling pretty quickly because it's it's the same the same area but the you can't have one without the other. You can't have black without white and you can't have happiness without sadness. You can't have joy without suffering, you know? So that's, you don't know, you don't know how good it is to feel healthy. And I don't know how good it is to feel healthy until I've been sick for a week. And then it's like, finally, when the cold breaks or the fever break breaks or my, whatever goes away, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so happy to be healthy again. Mm, but you have right. to have, yep. They're, they're, it's, Two sides of the same coin, health and sickness. So, 
You, you also uh, touched on something that makes for an interesting conversational point, uh, and it's something we've actually addressed many times here on the show, but I want to bring it up with you because I'm kind of curious to know what your take is on it. Um, because one of the things we've talked about is we, we often think about things like uh, anger and love being opposites. Uh, they really aren't opposites when you think about it. Really, the opposite of love is a lack of love. Really, the opposite of hatred is a lack of hatred. Those are the true opposites. But right. we think of these other things as if they were opposites, which is really just us evaluating, I like this, I don't like that. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's perfectly acceptable to say I like this. It's perfectly acceptable to say I don't like that. That's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, it's also an interesting perspective because when you realize that those aren't really opposites, they're just I'm choosing this over that, well, that alone is a different perspective. That yeah, so alone is a different way yeah. of thinking about it. Yeah, so good point. What so what is the absence of anger? It's not love. It's just there's no anger. So right. Yeah. So the absence of the absence of love is not anger. It's just uh, it's just there's no love. It doesn't. And so, the, well, and the the absence of, of anger is just there's no anger. It's just there's either anger or there's no anger. Which one is right. it? <laughs> right. So, of course, we get confused because sometimes we have a tendency to slide between emotions. I think that's one of the reasons why we end up drawing these these lines and say, well, this is the opposite of that. Because, like you say, there it's possible to be crying tears of, of grief and have it turn into laughter. Right. Cause, because there is a certain overlap there in our experiences. And the overlap happens because we are the ones doing the shifting. We just don't necessarily recognize that we're the ones doing the shifting. Right. And there's, and, and uh, you know, I know this... Uh, you know, if you pay real close attention to the emotion, you know, people say, I'm really angry. And it's like, well, what are you angry about? And they'll tell you. And so if you, if the, a lot of times what people are, when they say they're angry, they're not really angry, they're afraid. And so the, yeah. the fear is the primary feeling. They, they cover it up by being angry and lashing out at somebody. They either lash out at somebody they love, someone they hate or themselves. And they, and, but the real thing is they're afraid of something being taken away from them or someone being taken away from them. Anger is generally just a very fearful person that hasn't dealt with what they need to deal with. And that, that was me for a long time. And so it's like I was angry. Like when I used to drop the coffee beans on the floor, I would punch the cabinet uh, or, or, you know, get mad in traffic. And I don't do that anymore because I, I realized, you know, I've kind of figured it, figured a few things out. But the uh, the cat, I, I bet you the cabinet appreciates that. It doesn't well, like my, being punished. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Um, there was something else that I queued in my mind as you were, as you were talking about that. And I, I, I kind of lost it. So I'm going to, I'll, I'll let that come back to me. But, um, the, the topic that keeps coming up in my mind over and over again is choice. We live in a world of choice. We live lives of choice. I mean, literally we, we choose from moment to moment. I, you know, instantly. I, I'm, I'm choosing to look at this. I'm choosing to look at that. I'm, cho I'm choosing to talk to Lex right now. I'm choosing to take a drink of water. I'm choosing to, I mean, it's a constant series of choices. How on earth do we end up thinking that we have no choice in life? I, I haven't quite figured that one out. I mean, I know we develop these patterns and we, we get these habits that we picked up from when we were young and society teaches, but how on earth do we come up with the idea that we have, we, we don't have choice? I don't know. You have to ask. You have to ask the wrong person. I've never felt. <laughs> I, I have felt that I needed to do certain things because that's what society or my parents expected of me. But that was a long time ago. But I, I, uh, I, I almost always believe I have a choice. Uh, I don't ever. Okay, so in my experience, the 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 fact that I didn't have a choice or people don't have a choice is is coming from a victim standpoint, and that's programmed. Mm. And yeah. so these people. The, the people, people, or I'll just make it personal. If I'm, if I'm, if I don't have a choice, then I'm a victim. And then, so then the only couple of ways I can deal with it is to use that victim card and flash it and say, Hey, I'm not going to make this. I can't make this trip because I don't have money or I can't do this because of this because I'm a victim and I'm making excuses. And so I'm, I'll stay in the victim role for a little bit and then I'll go into the perpetrator mole role and, and, and take, you know, do something or I'll go into the mediator role. And, and fix something, but it's basically people, you know, float in the in the drama triangle. In my experience, they go from victim to perpetrator to mediator pretty well until they can get out of that dance to where they can see what the, what shoe they're wearing. And so mm. the, the the powerless part of the is the victim. It's like, hey, I don't have any choice. It's like, 
that's complete BS. You do have a choice. If you, if you had no, if there were no repercussions or, or, um, consequences to your action, what action would you choose in this moment? And it's like, okay, so I do have a choice. The reason I'm not making that choice is because my dad's not feeling well or my mom's this or, uh, my boss is a jerk or something. But at least if you, <laughs> if you, you get your power back by saying what the, the obstacle is. It's like, well, if you did have a perfect world, what choice would you make? And most people, mm. in my experience, most people are just happy where they are and they're not going to, you give them all the money or all the choices and all the vacation day, they're probably still going to, you know, sit on their butt and do whatever they were doing before. It's like, I always wanted to go learn the piano. I'm sitting here with this thing over my shoulder. It's a fake background. I can't play any instruments. I don't know why I chose this background, but. Well, well, Sam Lincoln in the live stream, he was saying it's a beautiful pack background piano that you got there. So <laughs> he's impressed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's this, I can't play anything. Um, but this is not, I have a, I do have a nice house, but this is, this is not my house. That's a virtual background. So, but people say like, oh, I've always wanted to go to Ireland. It's like, no, you haven't. It's like, oh, I've always said I wanted to. It's like, okay. So if you want to go to Ireland, what's the first step? You. Tell people you're going to Ireland to book a flight. Yeah, get the password, passport, you know, pack it up. Yeah, right. So it's like, okay. So, but people say, oh, I, I always wanted to learn to play the piano. It's like, well, you didn't really want to. You just thought it was a good idea. But one thing, to, one thing to do and taking action are, are, are different. So, so anyway, it, yeah, I, I well, it's an interesting point that you're raising there. It's a very interesting point because um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Sean Aker. He's in the positive psychology movement that's been going on in the world of psychology over the last 20, 25 years. One of the leading uh, authors in that field. And uh, he, he actually, uh, I think this is actually part of an experiment that he did. Yeah, it was part of an experiment he did. He, it was also based on some other experiments done by other um, psychologists and, and uh, researchers in the field. Uh, but what they discovered is that proximity plays a major role in how easy or hard it seems to be to do something. So, for instance, you mentioned p playing piano. Um, he wanted to play guitar more, and he couldn't figure out why he wasn't playing guitar more. And then he finally realized from studying all these studies that, well, what he really needed to do was get one of these guitar racks, put it on the floor next to the, the chair that he sat in as he watched TV and put the guitar in it. And when he did that, he'd play the guitar more. And sure enough, when he did that, he was playing the guitar five times more often than he did. But when it was over in the closet, it was too far away. <laughs> so he just wouldn't get over there to pick it out of the closet, pull it out of the case, tune it up, and start playing the guitar. Yeah. It was really proximity that made a, a huge, huge difference. Now, is it possible for us to overcome that with our focus? Absolutely. You know, this is like the, this is the kindergartner version of how do you get out of an old bad habit? Well, you just make it easier. <laughs> That's all. You just make it, you make the proximity closer and it works. It works beautifully. Yeah. I'm um, trying so. to drink, I'm trying to drink more water these days. So I have, I always have a sparkling water sitting on my, in front of my computer. So it's like, no matter what, um, I, you know, it, it's like, no matter what, I can always just reach for it rather than having to go get it because that, that requires work. You know, I'm, <laughs> right. I, have, I have amazing discipline and I'm, I love doing certain things. Uh, but I also kind of know what I'm good at. And like, I've tried to do musical instruments before and sing or whatever. It's not, it's, it doesn't excite me. It doesn't interest me. And I have no interest in that. But, you know, it's like, if you ask me, Hey, Lex, I've got, $5,000, you know, what, what we, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, I want to go get my private pilot license. That's my next big thing. Ah. And it's like, I've done so many things that I wanted to do in my life. And right now I don't have any regrets, but let's just say I'm on my deathbed tomorrow. And you say, Hey Lex, what's the one thing you said you were going to do that you didn't want to, you never got around to doing it'd be, I really wanted to have my own private, you know, my own plane and, and be a private pilot. And what kept mm -hmm. me from doing that? Well, um, just thinking I'll do it some other time. So it's, that's my next big one. I, but I haven't, I haven't manifested it yet and I haven't taken the steps to make it happen yet, but. Mm. Uh, it's, but it's on your horizon though. You're is. giving it attention. So it's bound to come at some point. It's just yeah. a question of when. But right now it's just a good idea. So, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, ideas without action are, um, and, and actually, it was appropriate that Sam recognized the piano in the background because he himself is a pianist and a very accomplished one of that. He's, he's very good. He's a, he's a great improviser and so forth. So, yeah, very good. Oh, did I, did I tell you that I can't play a piano? I meant I'm really good at it. And I, I, was, playing it in the back, <laughs> I was playing it in the background before you, you got me into this conversation. I'm going to go play it after I get done. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> I love it. Uh, now, there was actually a, a point that you brought up earlier, and, I, and you'll remember I blacked off from it. I couldn't remember what it was, but I remember what it is now. You mentioned how what the, the emotion that is behind anger is fear. And as soon as you said that, it reminded me of something that my wife taught me about. My, my wife is a former psychotherapist. She was a therapist for about 10 years. And one of the great things about being married to a therapist there are also some challenging things because, you know, you can't get away with anything. But one of the great things about being married to a therapist is you pick up all these tips. You pick up all these ideas. You know, here's what we used to do and here's how we thought about it. And here's how we trained it and all that kind of stuff. And and they used to teach the therapists that all negative emotions are backed by fear. In fact, if you just dive in deeply enough, no matter what it is, anything from anger and rage to fear to you know irritation, disappointment, it all is driven by fear right. at one level or another. So once you understand it that way, now all of a sudden the whole thing becomes really easy to understand. Why am I dealing with all these emo- negative emotions? Because I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Yeah, and so sadness, people say like they conditioning, like, okay, I don't want to be sad. It's like, no, it's okay to be sad. I mean, we're human beings, we have emotions, but you don't have to keep hanging the phone up and saying, okay, I'm sad. It's like answer the phone, <laughs> get the message and find out who's calling. And the person that's calling or the entity that's calling on the other end of the line that's sending you the sadness message is something or some more than likely something or someone that I hold dear is being is potentially going to be taken away from me or is in danger. So I'm sad because these people in, in uh, Ukraine are getting bombed right now. Um you know, it's like, find out what it is that's, that's showing up. So, but it's, it's fear. It's like, okay, so dig deeper. What is this fear? You get to it and you realize that depression, a lot of times, sometimes it's clinical or, or stuff that you really, you know, you can't just think your way out of or emote your way out of. But a lot of times that the, the procrastination or the sadness or the depression is, is all rooted in fear. It's, there's a, there's, what are you sad about? Well, it's like if you dig far enough about, about it, something or someone you hold dear is is in danger or is going to be taken away from you. So that's. And, and Ukraine is actually a very interesting example as well on this subject because there are, I'm not sure what the population of Ukraine is, but there's probably you know, tens of millions of them in, the, in that country. And there are billions of people. Now, there are tens of millions who are in the country. There's a fraction of that populations that are actually facing imminent violent activity. Right. The rest are not. And then there's like a billion people or more, probably billions of people around the planet who are watching all of this. Now, how many of them are actually experiencing a direct threat right now? Well, it's actually a pretty small percentage, but the rest of the world is behaving like they're experiencing it. Right. In other words, it's happening in the mindset. Right. It's happening the way people are thinking about it. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. So it's empathetic. I get it. You know, people have empathy for what's going on over there. But it's really important, I think, to recognize the difference between actually, you know, facing the Mongolian who's threatening your life and hearing the story about the Mongolian who's threatened somebody else's life. It's a different experience entirely. Right. right. Yeah, I'd, I'd, it'd be interesting if you, if we did a little exercise on that at some point about the, you know, like if I watch the the news and I see these people getting hurt in Ukraine. And I get sad or I get angry. I'm like, I, I sometimes yell at the TV, not yell, mm-hmm. but like just I, I cuss or whatever. My fiance says, you know, this is terrible. And, but it's like, okay, so what is, what is, what is it that I hold dear? And it's like, I hold, I hold dear people's right to be able to, to live a life without being hurt or to have things mm-hmm. taken away from. And I could see that this could possibly have been me or that it could be someone I love. You know, what if they try to take my, my freedoms and my liberties away, you know, it's like take away my freedom right. and my liberty and I might as well just, you know, wrap it up. So. But there it is. You just illustrated beautifully what the process is, at least the initial steps of the process of identifying what am I really feeling here? And why am I really feeling it? Yeah. What do I hold it, dear? What or who do I hold dear? And it's my, you know, the, my freedom and my, my ability to sleep where I want to sleep and eat what I want to eat and not have to have people, you know, shooting at me or, you know, telling me they're going to slit my throat in Mongolia. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'm also going to touch on something that could probably get me in trouble with, with some <laughs> listeners, but I'm going to risk it anyway. Um, right. because I, I have this thing about the, about a particular word. The word is compassion. Right. And I, I think most people will say that they, they believe in compassion. They like compassion. They think it's a good thing to be compassionate. 
And especially in times where there's things like a Ukraine going on or a pandemic are going on, that passion, compassion is so appropriate and so important. I've resisted that word for years. And in fact, from my perspective, it's always not about feeling compassion. It's about feeling love. And let me tell you why. The word compassion, when you go back to the original Latin from which it's derived, the Latin word is compati. Compati means to suffer with. Huh. What, what, what's the good of suffering with somebody? Right. It really isn't any. Right. Really, and especially from a conscious creator perspective, law of attraction perspective, we, we know in, in, in these circles that you can't help somebody from a low vibrational space. You can only help them from a high vibrational space. Right. If you get into a low vibrational space with them, all you're going to do is help compound their problem. Right. You're not going to make anything better. So why is it good to suffer with somebody? So I say, let's not be compassionate. Let's be loving. Let's put the love out, not the compassion. We don't, there's, there's probably too much compassion. There probably needs to be more love than compassion at this point. Well, that's, that's my, my take on it. I, I agree. And I, um, without getting in trouble with anybody on your end there, cause you, you, you started it, but they, <laughs> I did. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of false compassion and there's a lot of grandma compassion. I call it, which is basically just like, Oh, look at me. Uh, look at me. I just posted this on Facebook and I, I, I stand with these people and I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's really hurting me. That's that in a, in a lot of ways, false compassion is, is just taking sides and um, acting like you care, but it's like, do you, do you really care? Do you, do you really care? Or are you just using this as an opportunity to say that you're a good person? Mm. And so a lot of times, a lot of people have false compassion and it's like, they, they really don't care so much. They just care that they're okay and that they're, um, that this isn't happening to them. So if, if people posted or said what they really thought, it would be a lot easier. It's just like, hey, I'm I'm glad this isn't happening to me. Which I feel I, I feel very sad about what's happening to Ukraine. I'm very happy that it's not happening to me. I'm very happy that people aren't bombing my house. I'm very happy. I don't wish anybody bad. Uh, I wish this would stop. But you know, it's like you know, compassion. Like you said, I don't want to suffer with these people. You know, what, what can we, what can we do? And so it's like, you know, it's like if you, if you, it's like, uh, I don't know, I got to stop. I'll, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> no, well, I think you're doing very well, actually. I, I, I commend you. I, I completely agree with what you were saying and yeah. <clears throat> kind of take, take, take it to the next step because I'll take it to that next step instead of asking, you know, well, you know, I, I, I feel like I need to suffer these people. What would happen if we were to decide I'm going to send love to these people? I'm going to phrase it in, in the form of one, of one of my co-hosts on Monday, the way he likes to phrase it. His name's Louis. He lives in the UK. Um, and the way he says it is this. If you are feeling really bad about what's happening to somebody else, does it help them? And the answer really is no. It doesn't really help them at all. And is there anything you can do about the fact that right now they're feeling terrible? Well, you can send them love, but you really can't fix it. You can't. I mean, I can't reach across the waters and fix what's going on in Ukraine. But I can send love, and there's some there's some power to love. And certainly, when a large number of people send love, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens out of that. That's documented scientifically, so that's a good thing. And then he says, "What would happen if you were dealing with Satan? That's like the you know the the ultimate thing, or Hitler. You know, just pick like a really rotten to the core kind of a character." How would you, how, how can you defeat a Satan? How can you defeat a Hitler? And he points out that really, I mean, this is part of what comes out of Christianity. The, the only thing that actually defeats Satan is love. That's ultimately how Jesus defeats Satan in that whole story. There's a whole storyline about that in, in, in the New Testament, in the four gospels. You know, the only thing that defeated Satan was love. And it's why, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and yada, yada, yada. That's why none of that didn't work out the way Satan had in mind. You know, just, oh, just blew the plans wide open. So love defeats Satan. So what happens if you send love to Satan? And that's where the synapses start to snap. Because people say, wait a minute, oh, you can't love Satan. No. You can't love Hitler. You can't love Vladimir Putin. But what would happen if you did? Tell me by that, but you can maybe do it, but, um, I don't know. I, I'm a, you know, a math guy and a pragmatist for the most part. You know, I still have like very, very strong emotions and I'm deeply loving and caring and things like that. But 
you know, what, what I found is, okay, what can I really do about the situation? This is a perfect example of what can I do in Ukraine? It's like, I can send money. I've got relatives in Latvia, mm-hmm. first cousins. Sure. I can send them money and tell them, yep. I'm glad you're okay. Here's some extra money. Or I could do something, you know, locally. And it's like, you know, the, the fastest way that I found if I'm in a funk and I don't get in funks very often, but if I'm in a funk or if I'm feeling bad about myself or in my little cocoon about Lex, the, be- the best way for me to get my head out of my butt is to be nice to somebody or call somebody, be- go do something nice for somebody, uh, reach out and say hello. It, even on a local level, it takes the pressure off of me uh, and me and my little spiral and makes it a bigger thing by being nice to somebody. Now, that's not helping necessarily the Ukrainians or whatever, but by if, if I'm if I'm stuck in a in a in a sadness or a fear mode or something, which doesn't happen very often, I generally try to do something good for somebody else. And mm. like, act of kindness or reaching out and telling somebody, hey, it's been a while, you know, sending a text message to somebody I haven't talked to in a while and just said, hey, I'm thinking about you and I, and I love you or something. You know, just getting out of my little personal bubble is is is, is important. So what can we, what can I do for Ukraine? Probably nothing. Um, you know, and, and I know that sounds kind of nihilistic, but it's like, but what can I do to, to at least uh, make it not so much about me? And that's, you know, to, to do something nice for somebody else and get out of my little cocoon. And, and actually I'll, I'll get very uh, woo woo here for a moment and say, anytime that we do something kind I, it's more, more more about kindness than niceness, I think. Anything that, anytime that we do something kind for somebody else, it has a reverberation effect. It happens on a substantial level. And by substance, I mean the way that Einstein used the word substance, the substance of the universe. Right. Um, as he was trying to explain his theory of relativity and that there is an actual substance to space that we don't necessarily see yet and so forth and you know, all the... Uh, um, the, the physicists that followed were shaking their heads saying, how on earth are we supposed to untangle that one? But nevertheless, that's what he was pointing at. He was pointing at the fact that there's a substance that, that is, you know, connecting everything together. And I personally believe that we are all part of that substance. We are all connected together. We are all energetically connected. So the moment any one of us does anything for anybody in a kind way, that reverberates in ways right. we cannot even see. It goes off endlessly and continuously, and it never stops reverberating because once you set it off, it goes on forever. So I actually do believe that every single time that every one of us focuses on something that is a kindness for ourselves or for somebody else, either way, we are helping people in Ukraine and anywhere else around the world, anywhere that that people need help. They're being helped, even if we don't know that they're there. Even if we don't even know who they are, they're still being helped. So anyway, that's my viewpoint on it. So, well, this has been really great, and and uh, actually, I, I we haven't even touched on all the things I wanted to touch on here. Well, well, let's take a few minutes, see if we can kind of like just do a dance through some of them because there's some really cool things going on here. First of all, let's talk about yeah, right, we do. <laughs> it's really cool that you've been in all fifty states. I mean, I've been in forty three of them here in the U.S. You've been in all fifty. What what's your favorite one so far? Um. <laughs> Well, for a while, I was telling everybody it was Kentucky because that's where my family and, and, and house was. Now sure. it's probably Colorado because that's where I live now. But uh-huh. um, the um, it, it's funny. I, I could probably guess. I, I know you live in Connecticut, but I could probably guess the ones that you haven't been to. I'm going to catch me if I'm wrong. Wyoming's one of them. No, I've been there. Oh, okay. All right. North Dakota? Yep. You're right. One of them? Yep. Alaska? Right. Hawaii. Right. That's three. Um, I'm going to guess Louisiana. I've been there. Okay. Well, anyway, that's those are like when people say I've been to 45 or whatever, the, the ones that people haven't been to are like Vermont. But, I mean, obviously, that's your backyard. Up there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. <laughs> um, Washington State. Uh, that's one I've not been to. Well, actually, no, that's, no, that's not true. I have been to Washington State. Montana, so I actually think it's, I think, I'm kind of, I think it's at 44 now that I think about it. Um, Montana, Montana I've been in. Yeah. I, I, I've been, I've been there. I've not been to Minnesota. I've not been to, um, uh, North Dakota. Uh, let's see. Alabama, Mississippi. How many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six. There's one missing. New Mexico. 
Nope, been there. Right. Well, maybe it's only six that I have been to then. I, I guess I've been in 44. All right. <laughs> well, the, the one, my last one was uh, North Dakota of all places. And um, that was back 2008 or 2006. But my the, the weird thing is my two brothers who I mentioned earlier, all three of us, three guys in the same friggin' family have been to all 50 states. I mean, what, how often do you oh. spend all 50 states, much less three in the same family? So it's right. interesting. So, well, anyway, that was part of the bonus round. Um, what, what, what else? <laughs> uh, okay, so let's see, 83 countries. Um, can you, I, I want to ask you which one's your favorite because that's, that's really an unfair question. Identify some of your favorite ones that you've been in. Well, some of your favorite places. By far, my favorite one is Laos, uh, which is, you know, right next to Cambodia and Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, that's by far. Nothing else is even close. Um, wow. My Why? Second, the, the, um, because the people are extremely uh, peaceful and mellow and, and sweet. You know, the kind of people I want to be around. The natural environment, the... Um, the, the the landscape, even though it's landlocked, there's no ocean. It's it's some of the most amazing uh, landscape and and um, you know nature that that I've ever seen. Hmm. The, uh, it hasn't been uh, Starbucked yet. It has it hasn't been completely uh, McDonald and Starbucked, and it's still very mm -hmm. raw. And I like I like going to places that are raw, and uh, you know it's it's just a great place. It's it's and, and a lot most people don't go to Laos. They go to Vietnam or or Thailand or something. So it's, it's still, it's, it's not on the, the main, uh, vacation trail. I, my other, right. my other favorite countries, my, my, uh, girlfriend at the time, but now she's my fiance. We went to Colombia, which was the first time, uh, right before COVID. And it was, uh, it's in my top five. Colombia, which forever was under the, the thumb of the, the carteles and the, you know, the, right. the, the drug trafficking is now open for business and, Oh. It, is, it is, it is unbelievable. And so one of the favorite, one of my favorite villages I've ever been to is in, is in Colombia. And I want to go back down there on our, on our honeymoon here coming up in October. We're going to go to Bolivia. Like how many people do you know when they got married and like, Hey, where are you going? Or they all say, Hey, I'm going, we're going to France or we're going to Hawaii <laughs> or we're going down to Florida. How many people tell you they're going to Bolivia, right? Not too many. Yeah. I think you're probably the first. Yeah. Yeah. So that might be on my top top ten too, but um, so the number number one is um, Laos. The number number two is in India. I spent I've spent four months in the Himalayas of northern India. That's where the the cover of my book is. I was up in the Himalayas. Uh, okay. For about fourteen thousand feet, I've been up there trekking a bunch. And then Indonesia is an amazing amazing country. That's up there. Um, and. The only two countries I really don't want to go back to are Mongolia and Egypt. So my apologies mm. if if anybody's listening from Mongolia or Egypt, but uh, I had I've been there, done that. So yeah, it sounds like you didn't have your best experiences there. So that's understandable. I mean, yeah. why would you want to go back to a place that you had an unpleasant experience? That doesn't make any sense. So, right. Yeah, I, I think that's understandable. Well, this has been great. Before we pass uh, pass by and say uh, so long, I want to. Touch on a couple of things. First of all, the book, Passport Forward, that's the name of the book, right? That's available on Amazon, I imagine, and other places, I, I presume. Yeah, and there's the the, auto, the audio version on Audible just came out uh, over the last month or so. And it's... Oh, cool. It, it, it features yours truly uh, as the narrator. So people, some people say my voice sounds like Kevin Costner. I don't know if you, you picked up on that, but... A little bit. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Sure. Well, I always like it when uh, an author narrates their own book anyway. I, I just think it sounds more authentic that way. Right. I think it, the, the message, you know, even if the words, uh, you know, some, some authors are better at, at uh, crafting words than others are. But even if the words are kind of awkward on the page, when they come out of the author's mouth, it, ju it just sounds better. It sounds right. different because because that's their authentic voice. And, and so it makes it a much more pleasant experience. So kudos to you for basically doing your own audiobook. That's, that's, that's it's quite a, a job. Of, I know what that's like. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's, I, you know, like I, I wrote my, I wrote a book and I did the audio version and then I, I've taken a break. I went from, I don't know if you've written a book, but they say that the, after you get done with writing a book, it's like running a marathon and you're exhausted and you just get through the finish line and you just want to lay down and someone says, Hey, yes. you got to get up. You got to run another marathon called marketing, <laughs> marketing and promotion. It's like this, 
these things don't do well in a vacuum, you know? This is true. This is very true. Well, well, we'll see if we can help out with sales. So check out the book at Amazon. It'll be well worth it. I think you can tell just from my, from hearing Lex's story that it's it's going to be a very entertaining book. So Lex, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. Share your story. Share some of your your, your favorite highlights. We've really been appreciating it. Well, thank you all. It's been a pleasure, and um, I hope I didn't offend anybody. I was I was trying to be uh, trying to be funny at some point. So hopefully, I was able to come through with that rather than just being super serious. So. Oh, I think it worked just fine. So right. no worries about that. Just yeah, just you can put that out of your mind. It's okay. You're great. You know, if anything, they got pissed at me, so no problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Well, I'm gonna go play the piano now. All right, good. All right. Well, it's about time. What took you so long? <laughs> so thank you very much, Lex. Thank you, live streamers. Thank you to podcast listeners everywhere. We'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.